Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. After the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd in 2020, many Americans were at a breaking point. Journalist and author Wesley Lowry writes, many were ready for a radical reordering, or at least a reimagination of policing. But as most painfully evident after the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police last month, there's been no great reckoning. And in fact, in many cases, Backlash has outpaced reform. We talked to the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter about his new piece for The Atlantic called Why There Was No Racial Reckoning. Join us after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Wesley Lowry's piece this week in The Atlantic begins this way. If the summer of 2020 was, for many Americans, a breaking point, then the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd presented the nation's leadership class with a crossroads. Would they radically rethink American policing, or would they retreat to the safety of piecemeal reform, earnestly applying Band-Aids over bullet wounds? Two and a half years later, Tyree Nichols is dead, and the choice they made is clear. Wesley Lowry has spent most of the last several years writing and reporting on police violence and the movement to end it. Welcome to Forum, Wesley. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad to have you. You attended the funeral of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Can you describe what that was like for you? Why you felt it important to physically be there? Sure. Sure. You know, so I've been writing about these issues for coming up on a decade now. Um, almost full time. Uh, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 was kind of my first entrance into this space. And in the almost decade since then, I've been, for at least briefly, on the ground in almost every place that has seen significant unrest, protest, or you know, a, a police killing that has risen to the national consciousness. And as I watched the video of Tyree Nichols released a few weeks ago, it felt like a new inflection point. The last time we had really all together sat in these ideas was 2020, Mm. um, in which we had seen George Floyd's death. We talked about Breonna Taylor's death. Later on, uh, there is Jacob Blake's shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But since then, it hadn't felt like any of these, any additional cases had broken through. And so now, 
um, two and a half, almost three years later, we had this moment around Tyree Nichols in Memphis where all of us were again thinking about this issue. And so it felt like a natural inflection point to go back on the ground, be there in person, and to meditate on what, if anything, has changed since the last time we were all together talking about this. Yes. And when you talk about how you have been covering this for a long time and how we we all get together, there is this familiarity for you in the ritual of these funerals, in the people that show up. You show this in your piece. You write, for example, the usual cast of characters, brave the cold to pay their respects, Al Sharpton, Ben Crump. You talk about family members of George Floyd, Eric Garner, and Stefan Clark making the trip, and, and everyone singing from a familiar songbook. That is what you're communicating to some extent, right? The larger point being that that these happen and continue to happen because we put Band-Aids over bullet wounds, or more to the point, since we did not radically rethink American policing when we had that moment in 2020? Sure. Well, I mean, we, where we functionally did very little, for given how much energy and attention there was, how much relative uh, agreement there was, seemingly even across the political spectrum, we functionally responded to that by doing very little in terms of public policy. We know that you know, just talking about police shootings, so cases where officers shoot and kill people, there are at least three a day every day in the United States of America. Uh, that hasn't changed um, at all in recent years. In fact, last year um, was the deadliest year on record that we know of in terms of police killing people, right? And so here we are again. If, if in the most simplistic terms, the demand of the demonstrator or the protester or the desire of the public is to not see any more of these videos, to not have more of these occurrences, we have clearly failed at achieving that outcome because here we are again uh, revisiting this moment. Um, but then the moment becomes fleeting. We all gather, we do the thing, and not much happens. And then a year from now, here we, I'll be back on the phone with you, having reported from a new city and a new video, and there will be a new person who's been put in the ground. You say we've done very little, even though very little. <laughs> what have been some of these so-called Band-Aids since the summer of 2020? Well, I think that, um, I, I think that, first of all, there is a, when you think back to, you know, going back even before summer of 2020, when you think about the year of 2014, where you had the rise in body cameras, right, where prior to Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, Eric Gardner's death, and Tamir Rice's death, most departments did not use body-worn cameras. Today, almost all of them use body-worn cameras. We saw the rise in data collection and data analysis, something near and dear to my heart as someone who, as a journalist, has done a lot of that work. Yeah. Um, but that is not necessarily going to change things in a specific or radical direction. We've seen conversation around how we train officers. Is it a warrior mindset or a guardian mindset? We've seen discussions around... Um, escalation and de-escalation. Uh, we've seen certainly representational victories. Um, we go to Memphis and we see a black woman police chief, right, on a, of a police department that is majority black officers, right? And so it's not to say that nothing has been done, but what is true is that the solutions put forward 
have been solutions, the types of solutions you would put forward if you don't actually think there's that deep or structural of a problem, right? That, that a lot of this is relatively superficial um, and none of it actually cuts to the core of the institution of policing. And so these are the types of solutions you would propose if you do not believe there is something wrong at the core of the institution. While if you believe such a thing, uh, you would likely consider much more drastic uh, changes to the way the institution operates. Yeah. Wesley Lowry is journalist and author whose new piece for The Atlantic is why there was no racial reckoning. Let's talk a little bit about the Memphis Police Department, because I think they are a good example of exactly what you're describing. Can you talk a little bit about the Scorpion unit, uh, the team that killed Tyree Nichols? Certainly. So this was a unit uh, that was what the police like to call a quote-unquote elite specialty unit, a unit that was stood up to address a specific type of crime in a specific set of places. The the police chief uh, created this team a year or two ago amidst calls for more law enforcement in response to rising crime in Memphis. Memphis is one of the cities that has seen a spike in, in violent crime during the pandemic and the years immediately following it. And so this was a unit that was told, uh, in the words of the police chief, to go out and be tough on tough people. Uh, that their job was to arrest as many people as possible, seize as many cars and guns as possible, pull people, pull people over in protectual traffic stops. And they were, what, what we know and what we see is that these units are not new, right? They, these types of units have existed in major cities across the country forever. Uh, frankly, you know, a lot of people have watched The Wire, right? We, we, where the main characters are all part of a specialty unit that has gotten together to, to address the drug trade in Baltimore, right? Uh, but what we know is that these units historically are hotbeds of abuse, of problematic officers, of, um, of extremely aggressive policing, um, and that very often operate with a level of impunity. Uh, that they get to drive around in unmarked cars and, and get to gear themselves up as if they're going to war um, and don't necessarily have the same presumed responsibilities to the community that a patrol officer would or some another officer would. And so the Scorpion unit had been stood up about a year before Tyree Nichols' death, more than a year before Tyree Nichols' death, uh, specifically commissioned by uh, the police chief herself, praised mm. by the mayor for all of the arrests they had made and whatnot. Um, and here we can watch on camera what their behavior looks like. Um, and what, what unit had been dispatched out in you know, the year 2021, 2022, to deal with Memphis's violent crime issue. Um, and, and so it speaks in a lot of ways to the tension that presents itself in, the mo in our moment, right? Where we have, we have all watched on video a lot of behavior by police officers that again, no matter someone's politics, people don't believe is acceptable. And yet, across the country, in response to concerns about growing crime or a lack of safety, we are dispatching teams like this out and repeating, in many ways, a lot of the same decisions that we made in the 80s and 90s that we then spent the 2000s saying we would never do again. Yeah, built on this idea of hotspot policing where, as you say, they send people out to the areas where there is most frequent crime but you, you say hotspot policing is a principle and what matters is the practice. So it's not so much that you disagree with the idea that police are sent to the areas where there are more or there is most frequent crime or that's where people put their energy and attention. 
but that what can be done mm-hmm. in those places can be radically different? For sure. Well, of course, you know, that, that of course that when you want, you know, if I've got cancer, I would like the doctors to focus on the area that's got the cancer, not the area that doesn't, you know, that if there is an issue, we should target our efforts and our resources. But the issue becomes when a city or a municipality sees, okay, this is an area that is suffering um, from increasing crime or increasing crime victimization. The question becomes, how do we seek to remedy that, right? Do, are, are, are we sending in, are we sending in counselors? Are we sending in, uh, you know, are, are we trying to create safety, right? Or, or are we trying to create a set of order, right? That, and, and so what we see is that we know in most cities around the country, the areas that deal with the most crime are also dealing with any number of other um, miserable social outcomes. And so what type of resources are we pouring into those communities if our aim is to cut down on crime? Is the resource we're sending in a bunch of armed guys being told to rough people up? Or are the resources we're sending in things that are more community-oriented, that actually provide resources to folks? And and so that becomes the question one way or the other. We we see this across any number of social issues and issues of government spending, right? If you take it into, like, the healthcare arena, right, do we invest in giving people preventative care or do we pay it on the back end in ER visits, right? One way or the other, we're going to be addressing a population, the question is which, re- which resources would we like to apply to it, the front end or the back end? In this case, if you've got an area of a city that's dealing with increasing crime, increasing violence, there's unquestionably a need. The question is what type of resource do you apply to that hot spot? In this case, what we saw, we saw on video what type of resource methods applied to that hot spot. We saw yeah. people ripping a man out of a car for seemingly no reason and then brutalizing him to death. We're talking about the limitations of police reform, why there was no racial reckoning, which is the title of Wesley Lowry's piece in The Atlantic this week. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What has Tyree Nichols' killing and its aftermath brought up for you? Where do you think we need to go from here when it comes to police reform? Do you work in law enforcement? What do you think? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or call us at 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. On Monday, we'll look back at a time when many Americans say they had a shared educational and civic foundation thanks to Schoolhouse Rock that turns 50 this year. Today, we're looking at the limitations of police reform in the wake of the brutal, deadly beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police. We're talking with Wesley Lowry, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author 
whose new piece for The Atlantic is Why There Was No Racial Reckoning. And his new book, American White Lash, is forthcoming in June. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with Wesley Lowry with your questions or comments. A listener writes, Keenan Anderson was murdered by police. If you see the video, you can see him screaming for help. He was in distress. You can also see that they had multiple policemen chasing him. He was shackled. And even when he was unconscious, they were screaming at him to stop resisting. It's just full-blown murder. If you want to share your thoughts or what Tyree Nichols' killing is bringing up for you, what you want to talk with Wesley Lowry about, email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Do you want to comment at all on Keenan Anderson, Wesley? Certainly. Well, I think it's another, you know, another video that's really troubling, another case where what we see in the video is an incident that certainly does not appear to be one that needs to end with someone losing their life. And, and, I, and I think that that is, I, I think our conversation nationally has fortunately gotten to that place. And so when we began having these conversations around videos, very often it was about, well, why didn't this person completely comply and X, Y, and Z? And, and look, I think there's conversation to be had there. But, but the reality was, you know, in the Keenan Anderson video in Los Angeles, you have a case where someone has committed no crime is suspected of no crime has um, been involved in a car accident um, and, and ends up ultimately being killed by the police officers who respond to it. Um, it's just very hard to square how that is an incident that leads, leads to a loss of life. And, and so I think, again, the frustration for a lot of people continues to be that at a fundamental level, uh, folks, and especially black Americans, do not want to be having these interactions that seem otherwise or should be otherwise innocuous but end up with the loss of life and and want a society in which they can live their lives largely unmolested by armed agents of the state who respond to a traffic stop by killing them right or or who and i think that that is um something that remains elusive again we have not made the changes to american policing that would lead to that outcome and so unfortunately there'll be more keenan anderson there'll be more tyree nichols You've been following the public commentary around the fact that the officers who killed Tyree Nichols were black. You've suggested that it's narratively significant, but statistically unsurprising. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, when I was at the Washington Post, um, you know, we maintained a database of fatal police shootings. The Post continues to maintain it's one of the leading data sources on who the police are killing in America each day. And, and as we ana- analyzed that, those killings year after year, what we saw is that there was no statistical significance in terms of who the officers were, that having black officers does not lead to changes in police violence. In fact, very often black officers um, are, are the ones committing this violence, right? When you look at any number of cases over the years, be it Freddie Gray, now Tyree Nichols, and other cases, you, you've seen black and brown officers involved in such outcomes, right? And so in so much as, in so much as we focus on the race of the officer, uh, I think very often we commit a category error, right? That people who are concerned about racial bias, racial prejudice in the, in the institution of American policing are not claiming that the individual officers are racist, right? That in the focus, uh, so therefore the focus on the individual attributes of the officers is, is a, in my opinion, a mistake, right? The, the thing that 
we should be talking about is the structure of the institution itself. Um, and someone can be a player within an institution no matter their outcome, right? If an institution is in and of itself misogynistic or homophobic or racist, it doesn't matter that they have employed a woman or a gay person or a black person, right? Uh, that that person can still be a tool toward a greater or bigger end. And so what we saw here was a lot of public conversation very quickly about the race of the officers and a lot of speculation about whether or not the race of the officers meant that one, race could not be a factor in Tyree Nichols' death, or two, that um, but that was why there was not the same type of outsized public response that has taken place in other cases. And, and I just, again, from, from my vantage point, having you know, spent a lot of time on the ground and covering these things, just neither of those things really seemed to curl all the way over for me. Yeah, I I found it interesting, too, just to, to see the number of pieces that suggested that, okay, race clearly can't be an issue here, A, or, or B, uh, the fact it, it was something that was used for whoever had a particular purpose that they wanted to achieve by pointing those things out, but also this this commentary around why there weren't mass protests. There was also this question of whether or not there weren't mass protests because justice was swift, but whether or not justice was swift specifically because the officers were black and it wouldn't have been so quick if the officers had been white. What do you think about that? You know, I think it's an interesting conversation to have. I mean, I think it's hard because it's a hypothetical. Um, And, and, hypotheticals always provide both space for examples and counterexamples. You know, if we remember back to 2015 and the police shooting and killing of Walter Scott in North Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the white officer, Michael Slager, was fired and charged with murder before the video was released. And so we have seen examples where white officers have been met with this type of swift justice um, and or or rather with some amount of accountability, whether it's actually whether that ends up being justice is a, is a different conversation. Um, someone being charged with a crime and fired is not in and of itself justice. Um, and and I think a lot of people would suggest justice is a world where Tyree Nichols or Walter Scott isn't killed in the first place. Right. But the I, I do think that I understand why the response of people, especially black people, is to see something like this and to see what feels like an outlier after years of saying, can't we get these videos released sooner? Can't we get departmental response? Can't we get information to suddenly see this happening and have the cruel irony of happening in a case where the officers happen to be black? I, I think it's reasonable for people to question that, even if, you know, having spent a lot of time in this, I have a little skepticism that it's just cut and dry as that. Hmm. Yes. Harvey, for example, the listener writes, regarding the race of the officers, if they had been white, would they have been fired so quickly? So yes, it is a question that comes up. You talked earlier about the emphasis on the individual officers. We're getting new information this week. Internal Memphis Police Department records revealing that one of the five officers um, had texted an image of Nichols, badly beaten to several people. How... What do you think of the focus on that? Do you think it deserves focus and and reflection? But are you worried that, again, the emphasis is on individual actions? Well, look, I I think it's important for us to receive all the information and figure out what happened in this case, right? Well, it is unquestionably important for us to be able to contextualize and understand things at 10,000 feet. There's also the actual individual facts of a given case do matter. And so it is important to understand what these officers did, how they did it. Um, and, but, but also what I would suggest is I do think sometimes we have a temptation 
to believe that these cases are individually outlier cases, right? As someone who writes about this and has covered these issues for years, it's the things I'm hearing are unsurprising to me. The things I saw in the video were not surprising to me. The idea of a police officer inappropriately taking photos of a victim of police brutality and then spreading them to people both in the department and out of the department is unsurprising to me, in part because I'm aware of any number of <laughs> policing scandals that involve the police inappropriately taking pictures and sharing them with people. And so I think that it makes complete sense for there to be a focus on this. I think one of the big questions remains, and one of the reasons there is such a focus on this, is because of the implication that has spread that perhaps these officers knew him, perhaps there was something personal going on here. Um, and so I think it's one of the reasons there's a hyper focus on the behavior of this particular officer as it relates to Tyree Nichols. Uh, but I, again, I, I, I don't know what I don't know. I'm, I'm interested as much as anyone else in, in seeing what information and evidence comes out as this case continues to progress. But what's also true is I do think sometimes we look for too neat of an answer to explain things because we do not want to believe that this could just be common practice. We want to believe that this was some outlier and the reason he did X, Y, and Z is they had some personal beef or this or that. And again, that's not to say that it isn't what happened. We don't know yet. But what's also true is that it could just be that this police officer behaved in such a way because it would not be uh, it would not be particularly potentially rare that they would have behaved in this way, that they would have brutalized someone, that they would have attempted to cover their tracks by discussing and comparing their stories, or that they would have inappropriately shared the photos of him. That, that's something that, again, not every officer does, or not necessarily something that is commonplace, but is also not unheard of. Hmm. We're talking with Wesley Lowry, journalist and author, author of They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of Black Lives Matter, and a new book that's forthcoming called American White Lash. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts and questions, sharing what Tyree Nichols has brought up for you, where you think we need to go from here when it comes to changing American policing. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us at 866-733-6786. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. A listener writes, sadly, this seems to be part of a society-wide sickness that includes seeing violence as heroic. You bring up critical race theory as helping to explain an act of police violence involving black officers, critical race theory saying that racism and laws and policies that on their face seem race neutral can't be understood without the context of the social, political and economic concerns they they come from. I was struck by this because obviously, critical race theory has become a boogeyman on the right. I, mm-hmm. Why was it important to connect your readers to critical race theory as explaining some of what we saw, especially if they were confounded by the fact that the officers were black. Sure. Well, and I I think that, you know, as we know, and I think it's worth noting that in so much as the term critical race theory has become a boogeyman, it requires the speaker or the listener to not be correctly defining the term, right? Critical race theory is a specific thing that does not apply to most of the things that are described in our political discourse <laughs> as critical race theory, right? It, 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 was, it, it would be like saying the problem is seagulls when you're actually looking at leopards, right? No matter how many times you call them seagulls, they're still leopards. And, and so critical race theory is a, a, a legal 
framework. It's a means of thinking. And it was developed by veterans of the civil rights movement, attorney Derek Bell, who had been a litigator for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who now, following the victories of the civil rights movement, uh, began to try to analyze why the victories hadn't gone further. They had achieved these big legal successes, whether it be Brown versus Board, the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, the desegregation of schools and public accommodations. But now he was trying to figure out why had racism persisted in the ways that it had persisted. And as he continued to analyze it, what he saw was that the American systems found ways to adjust um, and, and to adapt themselves because the courts had ruled that these explicitly racially discriminatory laws could not stand. What the system adapted to was a bunch of laws that were theoretically or ostensibly colorblind, but that the outcome was racially discriminatory, right? And so what he said was we have to apply a critical thinking and a critical standard to how we think about um, how we think about how law works. So, so for example, right, in, in the United States of America, uh, there was a rule previously in Congress where you could not wear any hat or head covering on the floor of Congress. Well, that's neutral. No one can wear a hat or a head covering, right? But then you elect a Muslim woman to be a congresswoman from Minnesota named Delani Omar, and she has to petition to the Speaker of the House to get the rule changed. That this rule that is ostensibly neutral clearly would have an outsized impact on a practicing Muslim woman who wears a headscarf that it would not have on Tom Jones from Alabama, right? The law is theoretically neutral, but the outcome is not and could understandably be perceived or the outcome could be that it is discriminatory towards a certain type of person. So now when we think about policing and law enforcement and our criminal legal system, right, you can have laws, you can have statutes, you can have practices that on their face, the words themselves are not discriminatory, but that the outcomes are. And so that was what Derek Bell put forward in the idea of critical race theory. And so he writes and he talks about that you know, too often we get caught in this conversation about the individual actor. Is this person individually racist or not, right? Or about the, the characteristics of them. Are they black? Are they white? Are they a woman? Are they not? while not understanding that when we look at things that are discriminatory, such as uh, whether it be sexism or homophobia or racism, that those things can very often be embedded in the systems themselves. And so just because the, the warden of the prison is black doesn't mean that there might not be racism occurring in the prison, right? And, and that, and, and so, again, as we, so many of us around the country were grappling with this case of Tyree Nichols, and people of all types of political stripes, thinking, well, it feels like race might be a factor here, but I don't really understand it because the officers are black and the police chief is black. That's, in fact, the exact thing that the framework of critical race theory was, was developed to try to think through. How do we think of race and racism at a secondary level, not just at the, is this person a Klansman, check the box, yes or no, but in, in how does racism and prejudice embed itself in more insidious ways and other things that are ostensibly race neutral? And so, in fact, critical race theory was a remarkably helpful way to think about this case or a lens through which to think about this case. Let me go to Richard in San Rafael, who's on the line. Hi, Richard, you're on. Thanks for taking my call, and I'm really anxious to read this book. Um, we had a situation in San Rafael more than six months ago where two police officers 
attacked, and the video cams make that clear. Uh, a young man who was sitting on the curb with some friends having a beer in the canal district, which is predominantly Latino. And they, you know, the, the first question is, what are you doing here? And it was, it was immediately a confrontation. And uh, they, asked, they asked this fellow to get up. They asked this fellow to get up and, uh, or, I'm sorry, to retrieve his, his ID. And when he got up to get it, they told him to sit down. They told him again to get up and get his ID. And when he stood up, the one officer who outweighed this guy by 100 pounds punched him in the face. Hmm. And then he threw him to the ground and he pushed his face into the uh, gravel surface. The guy suffered a broken nose and a concussion. Now, there's going to be civil action on this and San Rafael is going to have to pay for it. My point is that, you know, what the police department has done since then is hold a series of community meetings, supposedly to find out from the community how to better police the city. And, you know, this doesn't require hybrid meetings with the community. We expect the police to ensure domestic tranquility with equal justice, dignity and respect for all, whether we're white or people of color. And no matter where we live and the police department here has still not come out with any consequences of uh, an alleged investigation, which has gone on for more than six months. And I just want to close by saying that this this is a systemic problem and, and a pathological problem within police departments across the country. Well, and I do believe that uh, federal federal uh, response is the only appropriate one to address and turn policing on its head. Well, Richard, thank you for adding that to the record and bringing that story to light. And, and I can't help but think about the similarities in terms of trying to comply and the confusing instructions in the Tyree Nichols case. And that's what we're talking about, the wake of the deadly terrible beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police last month and what it is bringing up for you, our listeners. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry this hour, whose new piece for The Atlantic is Why There Was No Racial Reckoning. 
And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts and questions. And Jeffa writes, over the years, I've learned that policing in America is about protecting property. This entrenched thread of protecting property goes back to America's centuries of slaveholding, when people were understood as property. This is why American police carry guns, where in other Western countries they do not. Policing has been about protecting black bodies as property and protecting property from black bodies. The culture is so entrenched that in some ways the race of the officer doesn't matter. Read Colson Whitehead's Nickel Boys. Underscoring some of the points that we've been making, Wesley Lowry, thanks for that comment, Jeffra. You brought up Derek Bell earlier and his ideas as just sort of foundational to critical race theory. One of the things you also point out, you paraphrase Bell theorizing that American racism is truly intractable. And I wonder if you agree with him. Do you think racism is intractable? And if it is, what, what does that mean? Where, where do we go from here? Sure. Well, so, so Bell's, conclusion that American racism is intractable was based on what he called uh, interest convergence. And that his theory was looking historically at moments of great collective steps towards racial equality, that he, that he concluded that as a country, we only take those steps when the white majority believes that those steps are in its own best interest. Right, not that white Americans take steps towards equality or equity because they are so, so sympathetic or understanding or equitable themselves, but rather in moments in which they believe it is in their own best interest, we take those steps forward. Which is why you see moments of massive step forward and then uh, relative paralysis. And and so his conclusion was that the reason American racism is intractable is because the white American majority is persistently unwilling to address it. Not that Americans are incapable of addressing the fact that we live in an unequal society, but rather that we just won't do it. Um, I, I think that that, you know, in so much as that theory is true, and I, I mean, I do, I do think that there's a strong argument to bear that out historically, in so much as that is true, it's something that is fundamentally in our control, right? If that is true today, it is something that we could decide to make be different tomorrow. Uh, we could choose as a collective society uh, to do things that even the majority of us don't necessarily think we will get anything out of, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, but and so, like I said, I think that for me, I try to avoid making too many pronouncements in my own voice, but what I will say is, that, you know, as someone who, who writes and thinks about these things, right? I, I do think that there is a, even as someone who writes skeptically, or some might even argue cynically, right? The act of writing, I think, is an act of optimism. I, I wouldn't spend my time mm. engaging these ideas if I, if I didn't think that us having these conversations could make a difference and could shift things. If I thought it was hopeless, I would be on the beach right now, not talking about these terrible things with you. <laughs> yes, that that's very journalist of you, <laughs> Wesley Lowry. Um, let me go to Patty, who's on the line. Patty in Forestville, you're on. Yes, hi, thank you. Um, I'm 68 years old. I, um, my understanding when I was growing up of what the police force was meant to do uh, and how they were defined was as a public servant. 
So in my mind, a public servant would have approached Tyree Nichols in a very different way. There would have been a person who might have needed to pull him over and ask him, hey, what's going on? Your taillight's out. You got it. Is there anything I can do to help you? Blah, blah, blah. But these people, the police force, are no longer public servants. Public servants don't behave this way. They're not bullies, and they don't go out and beat people up. So I just want the definition of what it means to be a police officer to be examined. Because if you look it up, they're considered public servants. And what does that mean? Thank you. Thank you, Patty. And just sort of the details that that Michael is tweeting here underscore Patty's point about where are we. Michael tweets from the facts that Sully dribbled out regarding the Tyree Nichols case. He likely had no idea it was police pulling him over. Unmarked cars, no flashing lights, being blocked in, plus officers in plain clothes, ballistic vests. You know, Wesley Lowry, polls, recent polls, I think there was a new YouGov poll that came out that showed 60% of Americans say we need to reform the police and that they that large majorities agree on things like requiring body cameras, creating a national police misconduct registry, even making it easier to prosecute officers accused of wrongdoing. I think even ending qualified immunity had a majority um, in that poll as well. We're talking about reforms here. um, But when you say that the act of writing is optimism, do you have optimism do you think these reforms are a path toward radical reimagining or real rethinking of American policing? I, I think they are a step towards it in so much as if and when we do those things, we will realize how much they do not resolve. Um, you know, everything that we talked about here, and again, this isn't to say that I don't think these are steps that should be taken, right? But qualified immunity would not necessarily have prevented what happened to George Floyd or Tyree Nichols. It would mean that their families should sue these officers individually. And perhaps, theoretically, these officers would have had that in the back of their mind. But I might suggest that even the increase of consequence may not be enough. Uh, these, these officers were all wearing body cameras. Um, these officers were fired, right? Um, and so we see they, these officers can all go into a database if we want them to. Tyree Nichols will still be dead. And so I I think that it's unquestionably true that there are many steps in terms of accountability, in terms of justice, in terms of how our systems operate that can be taken and that have not been taken yet. But what is also true is that if those officers go out there with the mindset that they have, um, it seems very unlikely. I mean, it was very clear that the officers in that video were not actively concerned about consequences for their behavior and their actions. And and so creating potential additional consequences does not necessarily is not necessarily going to deter someone for whom that is the mindset, who sees themselves as operating with a level of impunity, who sees someone like Tyree Nichols not as a citizen but as a suspect. And I think all of and so again, I think all of those steps could be taken. And I still think we might see people like Tyree Nichols being killed. You know, we talk about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the federal legislation. Uh, proposed after George Floyd's death, which includes many of these types of provisions. Although it's worth noting, there was nothing in the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that would have necessarily saved George Floyd's life. 
even passing such legislation, does that necessarily prevent us from seeing another George Floyd video? And fundamentally, what I think a growing percentage of Americans want is to not live in a world where we see the things that we saw in that video. Pat writes, unfortunately, I feel that George Floyd is to police violence against black folks as Newtown is to mass shootings. If these two especially and obviously horrible incidents didn't affect change, nothing will. I and many young people I know have given up. <clears throat> Here in California, Wesley, we're undertaking a reparations effort. Does the reaction to the murder of Tyree Nichols make you more or less hopeful that a reparations movement, well, a national one might succeed, but I guess even ours to some extent, it's still an open question. I think that, I do think it's been remarkable to see the movement around uh, reparations in recent years, certainly in the last decade, taking something that was seen by most Americans as kind of a political outlier, a fourth rail, and pulling it in and making it something that is now relatively politically mainstream, something that is playing out. I think that as we continue to have more information the way that we do currently, whether that's about our own history, acts of injustice that have happened in the past, as families have more ability to trace what happened to their own people and their own history, I think that they're going to see increasing willingness uh, for us as a society to make amends or to take atonement for some of those things. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, like I said, my feelings about kind of the growing reparations movement, um, which I've covered a little bit, I covered uh, the Bruce's Beach saga down in Manhattan Beach um, and, and a few other cases, you know, I, I think that I see that almost separately from where I see the conversation around race and policing. And I, and I do think the Newtown comparison is relatively apt. Um, I've covered a lot of mass shootings and a lot of gun violence in my career. Unfortunately, to be a journalist in this era is to be a journalist in the era of mass shooting. And I think what we're seeing is a societal legitimacy issue, that we have these problems in our country, in our society, that feel to many people to be intractable, that we have flooded our country with guns and people have access to them. And there's a deep frustration that there just is not a political consensus to do something about it. And so uh, when you see what, – so what we end up seeing is on any number of these very difficult, very complicated issues, you see people who um, grow very frustrated and discouraged because you do the things you can do via consensus, but the problems themselves are much more systemic, they're much more baked in, and very often there just simply is not the political will or political consensus to make change at that level. And that will be one of the questions, I think, uh, that faces all of us moving forward, is do we collectively have the political will, the political stomach, to really deeply reconsider some things about the way we've set up and structured our country and our society. And if not, we will continue to see whether it be Tyree Nichols and George Floyd videos or cases like Uvalde or Newtown um, or, or any number of the other uh, mass shootings we've seen in recent years. Wesley Lauer's book, They Can't Kill Us All, The Story of Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter. He also has a new book, American White Lash, forthcoming in June. We're talking today mainly about his piece in The Atlantic called Why There Was No Racial Reckoning. And we're talking about it in the wake of the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Um, Libby tweets, 
The conversation is always, always focused on race and societal ills like inequality and poverty, but never the glaring statistic that the overwhelming violence in the U.S. is perpetuated by men. The culture of American men is what needs to be dissected. Do you have any thoughts on what Libby suggested there? Well, I certainly think there's an, an intersectionality between issues of race and gender and ethnicity and, and characterization. And I think it's unquestionably true that the majority of violence committed in our society is committed by men. Um, and wh- whether that's men against other men or men against women, um, I, I think that is definitely and unquestionably true. Um, but I think that it, you know, in so much as I've reported and studied these issues, this is a, this is a yes and scenario, not an either or. Um, where if we look at the structures and system of our country, uh, we both certainly have issues of misogyny and, and toxic masculinity to deal with, while we also have issues of ingrained white supremacy, and solving one would not solve the other. Hmm. Um, and, and so I, I think that you know, we have to be able and willing to, to target both of these things. Well, Thomas writes, when will we see a deep dive investigation into police training I'm sure there have been some, but what are your thoughts on Thomas's point? There have, there have been some, and I think there's a lot of conversation to be had about that. You know, one of the things we know across the country is that police officers and the way they are trained, um, no matter the uh, public conversation we've had in recent years, continues to, um, continues to lag um, in terms of where the public would want those conversations to be. Um, what we also know is that there is very often a difference between what the letter of the law is, what the training book says, and what people are actually instructed to do while they're out on the beat or out on the job. And, and so I, I think that um, it's, it's difficult, right? Policing is an insular profession that has its own subculture, um, and those of us who are not members are do not necessarily have a fluency in it. Um, and because of that, it, it's much harder for public perception or public opinion to influence that internalized subculture uh, than it would be otherwise. And so, look, I, I definitely think that there's a ton of reporting to be done around police training. There has been a ton of great reporting done on those issues. Um, but I, you know, I, I agree with Thomas that there's always more to be done. You make this interesting narrative choice in your Atlantic piece that I want to ask you about. You share this anecdote about a man before the funeral of Tyree Nichols. There's this gathering and this man basically asks this question about whether or not, because it's looking like marches have not done what needs to be done, whether or not it's, quote, time to strike back. Do you want to talk a little bit about that moment um, that you witnessed? Sure, I'm happy to. Yeah, and so it was a moment in a press conference with Tyree Tyree Nichols' family and Reverend Al Sharpton and some other civil rights activists, and there was a local activist, an older man, from a more radical group who asked, you know, isn't it time for us to do something? Isn't it time for us to fight back? And uh, Reverend Sharpton and, and Tyree Nicholson's family kind of rejected that premise. But it, it is very interesting as we think about, and I think one of the reasons I chose to include that is, is it's very interesting when you think about it, how on balance black Americans collectively have rejected the ideas that there should be, that at some point you have to take justice in your own hands in these ways. It's not something that has been politically popular or palatable historically, that most and many of the gains that have been made have been made through operating within the systems. And that's not to say that they're not disobedient to them. You know, Martin Luther King was out there breaking laws, you know. But um, the idea in these moments, I think there is a lot of focus on 
order, right? A lot of the conversation about Tyree Nichols is about the lack of rioting, right? A lot of the energy around George Floyd was not just about the video. It was about the fact that there were some, some places and some cities that were burning and then the response to that. And I do think there is an interesting and difficult uh, tightrope between those two things, is that it is unquestionably true that cultures, societies, organizations respond to violence and threats of violence, and yet black Americans have not ever engaged in that as their political program at any wide scale. Um, but you understand why that conversation happens, especially kind of in an internal conversation like that, where it was black activists to black activists, and like, isn't it time, and what should we do, and isn't this not working? Um, and so I just thought it was an interesting and fascinating moment um, that speaks in some ways to the frustration and, uh, of what is this kind of never-ending story. Here we are again, trying the things we've been trying before. Mm-hmm. And even though they didn't quite work last time, let's keep, let's keep you know, let's stay the course. I just I thought it was an interesting moment to witness. Yeah, you started this interview talking about your experience in Ferguson to start in 2014. You said in an interview once, I think it was in 2020, that the difference between 2014 and 2020 is night and day uh, in terms of what, where we are in the movement and what <laughs> the usual cast of characters have learned. So curious about what you meant by that. Well, I think that remains true, and I, and I, and I stand by that. I, I think that's true today as well. The conversations we're having across the country in this moment were in many ways unimaginable in 2014 or 2015. The idea that we would see departments that are considering or pursuing programs to get rid of armed traffic enforcement, for example, are exploring policing programs in which they uh, have some non-armed officers who respond to some calls, in which we're seeing many of our mental health calls be responded to by social workers and experts and not necessarily armed officers. That's that's a very drastic change from where we were not that long ago, that we're having open conversations, even if they're unpopular, about police defunding and abolition. And so who knows what will be uh, one hmm. decade in the future, because where we are today was relatively unimaginable one decade in the past. Well, Wesley Lowry, thank you for documenting it, and thanks for being on Forum. Of course, anytime. Thank you, listeners, as well. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.